So, here we are after a few hours of practice. And I'd like to offer an opportunity for questions for you to help clarify um, your instructions and your practice or any experiences that you would like some comment on. And I know that many of you have been practicing for, some of you have been practicing for years, decades. And so, and some of you are here for your first retreat. So the instructions we give in the hall at the beginning of the sitting after breakfast are pretty generic. They're kind of suitable for everyone, adapted to your own uh, development of practice. So we can't possibly offer all of the specifics, um, guidance that we might be able to offer in uh, the single sitting in the morning. So we'll give you this opportunity to um, anything that would be helpful. So the question that we have for you is, how's it going? <laughs> and if you don't have questions for us, we'll have questions for you. Ah. Okay, yeah. About sitting. Yes. Uh, my meditation object is the breath. The breath. And the chest. At the chest. Sometimes the whole upper part of the body. Yes. When I look up, when I watch it, yes. it will automatically change to where here at the nose. Yes. But I am aware of the changing. Yes. Every time it changes, I am aware of that. Yes. Okay, so the comment is about observing the breath, and she starts with observing at the nostrils. No, you start with the whole, the whole body, the chest. But sometimes your attention automatically goes to the nostrils. And then you're wondering, should you stay there, or should you go back to uh, the whole chest? Actually, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Meaning, what's important is that you know this is the experience you're having now. Breathing in is like this, and you may feel it in the chest or the whole torso at some times. And at other times, your mind is quite natural, or your attention is quite naturally drawn to just the sensations here. That's fine. You can be with that. You can be with the whole experience. But as you do that, don't be careful not to struggle with what you're aware of. Whatever you're aware of is okay. You know, if you turn your attention here and it goes there, fine. Or if you find yourself staying at the nostrils for a sustained period of time, that's fine. If you find your attention being drawn to other experiences in the body, you know, uh, some discomfort in the body somewhere or just the body as a whole sitting, that's fine. We don't have to, it's not wrong to be aware of other things. We use the primary object, the breath, in this case, to start the momentum of awareness. And when we notice that we've been forgetful and we haven't been mindful for a while or we've just been lost in thoughts, then to start again and to start again using the primary object. But in between startings with the primary object, you may be aware of many different sensations in the body, thoughts in the mind, sounds in the environment, and other things before you get spaced out or forgetful. And then you have to start again using something. Well, use the primary object. But you can be aware of any number of things. Yeah, and it's okay to be aware of the whole range of experiences. Next question is about walking. Yes. Yes. I walk past lawn, cement, um, laptop, and um, gravel. So different, different steps. It gives you different feeling of the feet. Yeah. And should you, should you just know it, or should you, okay, this is this is rough, or this is soft? Right. Should you should be know it, or 
So the question is about walking, and when she walks outside of retreat here, from your car to work, you walk on different surfaces, cement, gravel, grass, asphalt, and your question is, well, what should I be noticing about that? Right? That's it. Mm -hmm. Oh. You want to answer it? Okay, sure. You, you gave the walking instructions. So Steve repeated the, the question. And when you're, when you're walking and you feel whatever is being felt at that moment, if it's rough, it, these are all the particulars, what we call the unique characteristics of that particular step. Uh, so if it feels rough, that's what can be noted if you're making a silent mental notation. But sometimes you don't even have to make the silent mental notation. It's uh, just awareness being knowing that particular roughness. Sometimes it's smooth. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's soft. Sometimes it's um, like tingly. So you may notice very unique sensations. Not, per- not like just the step, but very uniquely the exact experience of those sensations. So it changes, correct. Is there a time during the day in which it's appropriate to think or reflect? Or when we become aware that we're engaging in that process, should we bring our mind back to awareness? So the question is about, is there ever a time in practice to think uh, skillfully, right? Uh, Or should we just uh, put that aside, put aside any intentional thinking, and just, when we notice that we're thinking, leave it and come back to uh, another experience that's happening at the moment, primary object? Well, to be a little bit more specific, at this retreat. At this retreat. I'm glad you mentioned that at this retreat, because I just want to acknowledge that you all have, a, a, not all, but some of you have a lot of experience, and you've heard from different teachers, and you've practiced different things, and we're not asking you to forget everything you've learned. You can't do that anyway. But we are asking you to consider what we're offering and give it a try, and see if you can work it into the kind of practice that you do. So um, we're not saying don't do what you've been doing, or that it's wrong, or anything like that. We're just saying, well, maybe we'll be offering something that you haven't heard, or haven't tried, or haven't practiced much, and give it a try. So, in this case, dealing with thinking, actually, we cannot practice well without thinking. We have to think about how to practice. How do you practice? Well, you remind yourself of the instructions. That's thinking. You know, and when you, get, when you notice that you're caught up in you know, thought that you weren't aware of, you've been lost in thought, for example, restlessness, wandering mind, then we have to have a thought. Well, now what do I do? And you choose to do something. You either take note of the kind of thinking that you've been doing, or you direct your attention to the primary object, again, or you just notice, oh, here I am, just sitting again. So that we kind of internalize the instruction and we use those internalized instructions in the form of thoughts to guide how we're going to practice and how we're going to practice skillfully. What's the right thing to do here? What's What's a good thing to do? So, yes, we have to think in order to practice skillfully and effectively. But the thinking that we want to be cautious of is this, uh, you know, we call it wandering mind. But it's actually thinking, but not being aware that you're thinking. Right? You know, you, you know, you're trying to be aware, but somehow the mind gets enticed by a thought. You don't know that you're thinking. Your mind wanders off. And when your mind is thinking, and you're not aware of it, you don't, 
you don't know what you're thinking. You don't know how long you've been thinking. You don't know what you're thinking about. You don't know whether you like it or don't like it. You don't know if you're sitting, you're standing, you're walking. You don't know your name. You don't know the time of day. You don't know anything. You don't know anything. Well, that's not quite right. But you're not aware of anything, right? It's not only me, right? So when your mind wanders off and you're lost in thought, you don't know anything. Okay. That kind of thinking is not particularly... It's not useful. And, but sometimes we are kind of like solving problems and you know, rearranging our to-do list and we're commenting on things that happened in the past and we're kind of planning f- for futures that we'll never live. <laughs> and most of the content of that kind of unconscious thinking or thinking unaware, not, not particularly relevant, not useful not necessary, actually. So when you notice that, just let that go. Use your skillful thought to direct your attention to present moment somehow, reminding yourself that, oh, what I'm doing here is remembering to recognize the present moment. What is the present moment? Okay, like that. And I just wanted to add to that that the present moment is knowing that wandering mind is happening. So that don't forget to do that because the mistake we make as meditators, and, and um, I'm including myself, is that the moment the mind has wandered, it's like there's a little bit of like, oh, not sp- and rush back to the breath, which is um, actually we get to uh, make a habit out of that. So it's as if we're avoiding what is being known in that moment. And we don't even know we're avoiding. So it's really helpful to know wandering mind it's just the end of wandering mind because it's um, awareness awareness comes knows that moment it's going away so is awareness also but it knows that moment of wandering mind passing away and then know what's next it may not be the breath the next moment to be known may be hearing or or, um, some sensation in the body so not to think that you're always going to come back to the breath because to make that habit to always come back to the breath is not really a good habit in this particular practice. Because then we don't know anything else. It's just rushing back to the breath all the time. So know what is known predominantly in that moment. And I just want to, as a side note, I just want to say I was looking up a Uh, some kind of um, practice video last night and I came across this one video of a scientist who was testing the brain scans of people um, and it it knew where the scan knew when it went to a place of wandering mind I'll just say wandering mind and this scientist came up with this um, ratio that based on science, that 50 to 80% of our thoughts are, of normal average people, are 50 to 80% is wandering mind, like useless thoughts. So what we learn in this practice is what thoughts are useful, like Steve was just saying, what thoughts are skillful, and we can continue on that line. And then you, you know automatically this is not skillful this is not useful so then it's easy to just drop that thought so that's a huge thing that we learn in this practice and so we use our thinking more and more in a skillful way Uh-huh. So, and so some of that floats and you're just aware of it, and other times it's like how much do you give to the exploration of the cause and condition? 
Sure. So the question is about noticing the unfolding of, you know, the the activities of the mind-body continuum, and sometimes noticing cause the causal relationship between one moment and the next, or the causes and conditions that give rise to triggering something in the mind, for example. And how much time do you give to kind of notice all of the causal conditions, or the conditioning, huh? And kind of figuring it out or explaining it or something like that. That's a good question because the 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 barest um, practice that we do intentionally is just remember to recognize the present moment. And some of what we notice is this experience conditions this reaction in the mind. So we see that oh. For example, when discomfort arises in the body, then the mind gets irritated. When the mind gets irritated, then we start thinking, maybe I should move, right? So we can see, just in that simple little example, we can see that the experience of the body conditioned an experience in the mind. Conditioned in the, the experience in the mind conditioned another experience in the mind. And so, it's not that we tried to figure it out. We're just observing. We're just recognizing, remember to recognize each moment's experience. And we see. And at some points, we'll get it. We'll understand, oh, this, this is what's going on. This is why the mind is so anxious, fretful, fearful, impatient, looking at the watch. Because, well, the body's in pain, for example. So we don't have to... We want to be careful not to try to figure out why a certain experience is happening. But if we just continue to remember to recognize the present moment, we will notice this, conditions this, conditions this, conditions this. And sometimes we have uh, insights or we have kind of understanding kind of occurs, lights up in the mind and we go, oh, that's what's going on. Now I get it. But not because we're trying to figure it out, not because we're trying to explain it, not because we're trying to prevent it from happening again, or anything like that. We're just observing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we need to figure out how much time to spend on it. If you just notice the present moment, you'll notice what you notice. And in time, you may have greater understand. You will have greater understanding of the cause-effect relationship or the nature of conditioning through causes and conditioning. Just a second question that I struggle with today a lot is um, tiredness. And um, I found it very difficult to um, be okay with that. You're looking at me okay. So noticing tiredness and found it difficult to be with it. Uh, and I guess you're asking what to do with that, how to handle it. Well, I kept finding myself like, um, I know there's some techniques, but I, was, I found it like that I kept really dozing off. And kept I really? Might, you know, come back, but okay. I found it difficult. Found it difficult to be with that, kept dozing off. Tiredness. Yeah, I guess the discomfort of that. The discomfort of it, yeah. The tension you felt, I'm repeating for others, yeah. The tension you felt in wanting to sit and taking a nap and having thoughts about that. So did you notice all of those things close to the moment that it was happening or was that more in retrospect? Okay, well, that's really good. That, that's being mindful, being aware of what was happening. You, you could also see the cause and effect relationship in that. Yeah. So some of the things actually that you could do during those times, just to mention these antidotes now, um, that when feeling sleepy, feeling tired, it's really helpful to open the eyes. I think we said that earlier. Another thing to do is to stand up, um, 
because you're more likely to stay awake if you if you stand up. I've only seen one person fall down, you know, and woke everybody else up around him. <laughs> uh, so it's really uh, the standing up is good, and also if you know. You know, these first few days are days that we're normally tired and sleepy. If you open your eyes, you might see me swaying a little bit too. So um, it's normal for that to happen. And it's normal for us to feel bad. You know, like I'm not, I'm speaking for myself. Oh, I'm not being a good yogi. You know, that'll go through the mind. Oh, noticing that. Oh, this is a bad advertisement for the Dharma. <laughs> Noticing that, you know. Those thoughts go through the mind. And it's okay. In one of the biggest things we realize as we keep practicing, that thoughts are just thoughts. They don't have to believe them. Um, and we get more okay with, with how, oh, it's just another thought, it's just another habit pattern happening. Yeah. So on this side. Back to wandering mind. Um, <laughs> the end of wandering mind, where the mind kind of wakes up and says it's been wandering and takes it back to whatever it is. This is wandering mind. That's an easy point. That's obvious. No matter, I, I cannot, no matter, try countless times to pinpoint the part of when the mind begins to wander. I can I it's, mm. I, I sit here with awareness, with awareness, and my mind with awareness wanders, <laughs> but it's no longer aware. I, I've never been able to find the point where the mind begins to wander. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, we can notice when the wandering mind comes to an end, thankfully, <laughs> but we rarely, well, we never see when the mind begins a mindless, a wandering mind. We never, and that's, that's, it's, they're mutually exclusive. If you're paying attention, the mind doesn't wander. Okay? It's, I mean, that's the science, that's the, that's the theory behind it. But as you, as you, as we continue to develop the, you know, the continuity of awareness, you'll see that the mind wanders for less, a shorter period of time. Now, you might think that if you notice that your mind is wandering two or three or four times during a sitting, it's, well, it's wandering. And, but two or three or four times, that's, that's not too bad. But later, you know, the next day or after you get a little more momentum, you notice that the mind has wandered 35 times in the same short sitting. And you'll think, oh, it's getting worse. But actually it's getting better. You've noticed 35 times now instead of just three or four. So that's better. But it doesn't feel, subjectively, it doesn't feel better to notice more wandering mind. Right? It feels like you're doing worse. So be a little careful about that. The other thing is, the reason the mind wanders, or the reason that the mind thinks and we're unaware is because of a moment of unwise attention. Okay? And as soon as we are paying wise attention to the present moment, that kind of thinking doesn't happen. So they're mutually exclusive. So we can't see that first moment. We might see, we, with, when, the, when the momentum of awareness gets, picks up a little bit, we can see that there's, it's almost like you can see the mind wanting to go think about something and you go, yeah, and you just, no, no, you just noticed it. You noticed it's about to think and then it doesn't go. But in the first few days, it's often gone before you know it. Yeah. So don't beat yourself up about it. Just notice when you come back, oh, here you are, great, start again. not 
turning sharply back to the breath when you when you have mm-hmm. thoughts. So if I can see a thought arising or an image, am I allowing it to do its thing? Now I'm aware of it. Am I allowing it to continue? I don't want to bat it away. I know that's not mm-hmm. helpful. But am I? I see that thought arise. Am I just watching that thought until it comes to its conclusion or that image in the mind? Or am I turning away from it ever so gently, not batting it away? But Mm. Yeah, so the question, the comment is, uh, when a thought arises in the mind, you can, can, am I right in thinking, you can almost see it arising? If I see it arising, yeah. See it arising. And then, is there a note? sort of the beginning, seeing the beginning of it. Seeing the beginning of it, okay. Do I just let it rip, or? Uh, Well, if there is, like, wanting to see the rest of it it will you will be letting it rip <laughs> and sometimes it happens but when mind and when mindfulness is really strong it can see the mind it can see the thought arising and it will what will happen is mindfulness will reflect the impermanent nature of it and you're not making it go away it's just that mindfulness and consciousness is see, is seeing how it is impermanent so it will go away so i'm observing it until its conclusion just as a matter of my awareness basically if you're seeing it in its conclusion then um that's what's happening you know there's an interesting thing when we read a sentence we read a word another word another word and then it creates a whole sentence that has meaning. When thoughts appear in the mind, they don't appear as words that we then put together to have a thought. A thought arises fully formed, just like that. It's not like you have half a thought. You know, you might see the impulse, like you said, you might see an impulse, but you're you're, kind of cutting it off, the awareness is cutting it off right then, it's just not letting it run mindlessly. So, you know, sometimes thoughts just poof, fully there, but if you notice that, sometimes, and I hear you saying, sometimes you can say, I'm just going to see where this goes. And, you, and then you can kind of watch it kind of scroll along. Uh, but actually what's happening there is there's, as Kamala mentioned, there's this mental state of you know, kind of curiosity. I wonder where this is going. Or wanting to see it unfold. That would be the, that would be the important thing to notice. Your attitude towards the thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's right not to bat the thought away. We're not trying to nuke it. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to just indulge in it. So recognizing clearly that thinking is happening, and if you have a relationship to that thinking of, I like this thought, fascination, or I don't like this thought, aversion, or curiosity, or maybe you feel like ashamed to have that kind of thought, you know, watch the nature of the relationship to the thought. That would be the important piece. Mm. What about way back there next to that tree <laughs> in back of you? I wanted to know if this, this was expedient to do in the practice. I had um, something happen that triggered uh, memory. And I was with the memory in the present moment. And I was with the feeling attached to the memory. And I was also with what was going on in my body. And it started to generate a kind of agitation. And I told myself, this is just thought. And at that moment, I felt as if I was watching, a, had watched a clip from virtual reality, but I was really sitting in the chair. So the comment is about um, having a thought, a memory, and kind of re-experiencing both the memory and the emotion of it, and whether to kind of note it and just let it go, or whether to kind of be with it. Is that the comment? Yeah. 
So the question is, is it appropriate to just notice, oh, this is a thought or thinking, and it's being known now in this moment, and I'm just sitting here. That, that's fine. If you, if you just have a recognition of like, oh, thinking's happening, then the content of it may or may not continue, but there's clearly a recognition of being aware in the present moment. That's what's important. Oh, thinking's happening. Yeah, that's good. Sometimes it'll stop and just you're just there for the next moment, whatever that is. But sometimes it'll have some, we'll call it legs, it's got some momentum and the thought or the memory will kind of carry along and you have to kind of keep recognizing, oh, thinking, uh, feeling, remembering. Okay, uh, not liking. <laughs> okay, oh, feeling sad or whatever. You know, because it's kind of going on and, and you're, you're recognizing its qualities as well as the process that's going on. It's okay. So that gentleman in the black shirt. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, this is more of a question from a beginner. Uh, what level of faith do you need to be able to engage in this practice? And, and I mean faith that it's worthwhile to do. And then what, what advice do you give people who you know, go down the road a little bit and start to have you know, roadblocks with their faith that, that this is something worthwhile to do? So what level of faith do you need to have in order to keep going, basically? One, yeah. Well, you have, you all have a level of faith that brought you here. And so it really depends on what is your aspiration? Like, what was your aspiration to be here? Can I ask you that in public? Mm-hmm. Um, and one part of that was coming to a intensive retreat, and so it was just it was more of a commitment to do it. No, I did it, and then be able to look back and see what happened. Mm-hmm. So you made an aspiration a year ago to do it, to do your practice every year, and then do okay. an intensive retreat like this, and then to be able to look back and see what happened. Right. So have you finished that aspiration, or is this the retreat? This the, Okay, this is the retreat. And you're seven months in now. Basically, you need the faith to keep you going one breath at a time, one step at a time. And if you can do that, then you'll keep going. And um, I would be just true to your aspiration. See if you can keep that aspiration going. I'm going to talk about faith later on in the practice. Sometimes you have to borrow the faith of of somebody who knows your practice, like a teacher or maybe a, a spiritual friend that has some confidence in you as a, as a person who has this aspiration. And so all of us, you know, as, as teachers here now, have had to borrow the faith of our own teachers and our own uh, spiritual friends that, yeah, you can do this because we're all here in it together. We've done it. It's hard sometimes, and we just keep going. And if you can have um, this mindset that says, um, this is good enough, instead of trying to kind of reach for the stars, just reach for the next moment. Just be present now and then now. There's so many times we can give up, but that we can also start again. So if you can have faith in just that, that will help you keep going. I just want to tell a story about my own faith. Um, I used to, this very place, you know, many years ago, 30 years ago or so, doing walking meditation, I used to make the, the um, aspiration to be perfectly mindful, like in a walking path. I remember being down there somewhere on a walking path, and I say, perfect mindfulness. That was my aspiration from here to the end of the path. But I never did it. I never, I failed all the time. So I decided to make it mindfulness from here to like the middle of the path. No, it didn't work either. So finally, I just made uh, an aspiration to be mindful from here to the next little rock I saw on the pathway or the next leaf. 
And that was good enough for me. And that's what helped me to get through. Then the other thing is just knowing that other people have made it through in the same way. So see if your faith can be just enough to to keep you going. And then um, there's a lot of other things that one could have faith in. They say, you know, faith in the teacher, in a teacher, faith in the teachings, but mostly faith in oneself is what we need to develop the faith in, that we can do it a a bit at a time. So I'll expand that um, in in the next few days. Yes? You know, this is this is uh, common. Uh, it is common experience to feel like we don't have enough support for enough uh, a teacher close enough or a sangha close enough to kind of remind us or to daily or weekly. And how do we get that? I can see my mind wanting to answer in two different ways. Which one would you like? <laughs> well, the first... <laughs> okay, the first is, there is there's a tremendous amount of resources online. There are all kinds of Dharma discussion groups and or, um, you know, online sanghas. You know, it, it might take some looking around or to find one. And, but I, I know that a lot of us work on computers and we don't want to spend our practice time on computers. You know, we want to put that aside and, and be with people. So we have to, you know, kind of make the commitment that we're going to practice anyway. And then if there's anyone else in your neighborhood that practices, invite them over once a week uh, on, you know, some evening or, you know, half day every month at home, just at home that. So if you don't have a Sangha, make one. Invite someone that you know that's in your area that practices. Um, as for teachers, you know, there, is, there is a shortage of um, teachers for every community that wants to have a kind of live-in <laughs> residential teacher. So we're working at training more people, but still there's a shortage. So um, actually, anyone who practices can be your teacher. I mean, because you can share your experiences. It's more of it's more of the model that we use of just being a spiritual friend, a kalyanamita. Um, you know, sharing our experience about practice, in- inspiring, encouraging, informing each other about practice. Yeah, and it takes a while. You know, it takes when when we have the internal commitment. And we're we're going to do it anyway. Then you'll find a sangha, definitely. I know that you hear stories about us and from us, and that we've had teachers. And the reality is that you know, well, Steve went for five years to Burma, and, and I've gone, you know, for several months here and there, one month at a time, two months or three months. Uh, but the reality is I, I didn't live near a teacher or, you know, to have one just readily available. We all kind of had to go someplace to be with somebody or make arrangements a year in advance 
to know where that teacher was at and we would go there. And so my heart kept in touch with those teachers even though I didn't see sometimes them for a year or two or more. My heart just kept in touch with them. And um, even the Buddha said when he was passing away that the Dharma's your teacher. So it's just our continuing to do um, stay with our commitment, which is not easy in this world. So, um, as the young gentleman was saying back here, it takes it takes a lot of that commitment. We can find it in ourselves too, moment to moment. Yeah. So the question is about what is Dhamma, and uh, initially you thought it was just the teachings, and then you heard that oh the nature, the Dhamma is the nature of things, and maybe all of nature, and maybe all of experience in life is an opportunity to be awake and aware. Right, you're getting it. (laughs) Generally, I, I I point to three areas of the Dharma. One is the way things are. The way things are, this is, this is just the way things are. It's, it's, it's just a fact, right? Things are the way they are. And we may not understand why they are that way, why we have the experience we have, but we can know this experience. So in that sense, the laws of cause and effect, and causal conditioning that give rise to, well, life being like this, that's the Dharma. Laws of nature. We also could say that, oh, this moment is a Dhamma. Whatever you experience in this moment is a Dhamma. It's the Dhamma of hearing. It's the Dhamma of seeing. It's the Dhamma of pain. It's the Dhamma of fear. It's the Dhamma of awareness. They're all Dhammas because that's the way it's come to be in this moment. But also the capital D Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. It's called the Dharma. So the Dhamma is always pointing to the way things are, the present moment's experience, anything that points to how it is right now for you, Dhamma. So we are part of nature. We're not different than nature. So you could say that the Dharma is also nature, or nature is the Dharma, pointing to the way things are, the way things have come to be, the present moment's experience, the teachings of the Buddha, which point to the Dhamma, which point to this, is called the Dhamma. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a question about walking meditation versus other kinds of body-based movement, such as yoga. Um, A lot of what you were describing that we're looking for in doing the walking meditation, I find it much easier to find doing yoga in terms of awareness of the sensations in the body, you know, keep being mm-hmm. very embodied throughout. So I find it more tempting to do yoga than to do walking meditation, which feels more, more of an effort. Um, and I have more of a tendency to have my, see my mind wandering off. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's something, uh, you know, particularly um, important about doing walking meditation, or is it doing some form of body-based, body movement practice that creates the same kind of awareness that you're describing in walking meditation? So uh, the comment in question has to do with walking meditation, and more precisely, um, that you in particular have an easier time being connected to the body when you do yoga. So is there, how do we weigh that out, basically? Um, that's fine if you have more connection with the body and being aware of the body when doing yoga. So some of your practice here can be doing yoga, you know, in your room. That's just fine. Uh, 
um, the walking meditation we give actually because the Buddha gave walking meditation, so we're following that particular path. And um, so that's what we know, so that's what we hand down. And also because most of our life is walking. A lot of our life is walking. So to learn to be more aware in the movement of life, as in walking from one place to another, is really important. Because we can't do yoga from one place to another, but we can do the the walking meditation. So um, during the time... Uh, the Buddha, the monastics went down out on alms round. That was a big deal, you know. It was a major part of their day, uh, and going from one place to another. So, the awareness practice was taught with that as well, so that there could be a continuity of awareness throughout the whole day. Yeah, in in everything that we did. I think the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha did give specific instructions for walking practice, but he also said every posture, you know, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So when you're standing in line for waiting for the meal bell, ah, know that you're standing, really experience that. Uh, When you're moving, when you're doing a formal walking, of course you can do that. When you're doing informal walking, just getting from here to the toilet or from the toilet to your room or in your room from one side to the from the closet to the dresser or whatever, notice all that. So it doesn't have to just be a formal walking. What we're really pointing to is being present in the body however it is. If it's moving, being present with that movement. Being present with... Uh, um, not 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 having any agenda about it, and this is why I'm mentioning it because sometimes in yoga we have a little agenda to to assume a certain asana or posture or to try to open up a certain part of uh, our body that we know is kind of tight or working on the shoulder or whatever. And while that is useful and can be useful and necessary actually in practicing yoga. On, the re- on this retreat where we're cultivating just awareness, we want to be careful, we want to be careful not to get any agenda, not to let any agendas slip in. So we're not trying to fix anything, we're not trying to correct it, we're not trying to make it better, we're just trying to, we're cultivating this capacity called awareness. And some periods of yoga where you're doing movements of yoga, but doing it with, not necessarily as a yoga practice, but just as a, an awareness practice. So actually, like in the sitting, when we pay attention to the breath, we're not doing a breathing exercise, we're doing an awareness exercise with the breath. Same with the, the movement. We're doing an awareness exercise with the movement. So if you do yoga, do it with awareness, keeping an eye on the awareness, rather than maybe the asana or the quality of the pose or something like that. Back there. Yes. I think you had two questions there, but I forgot the first one. Uh, yeah, I just asked about um, like the level of emphasis to put on the notes. Okay, great. Maybe like, I'm just coming to a sitting, the mind isn't very still. Sure. Yeah. Right. So the question is about um, the Burmese style of practice, which we're teaching here, of uh, noting what your experience is, and how much emphasis to give to the noting, and how much to give to the awareness. Right? And then 
trying to understand the relationship between noting, awareness, mindfulness, and <laughs> kind of the whole thing. Is this a continuum, or is it one or the other? The noting um, is really just a tool to help support the continuity of awareness. Okay, So if you think of it that way, it's a tool to be used when necessary. Now, we use noting, or we suggest noting, when the mind is particularly dull, and, you know, and it's just kind of like, you're just kind of sitting there kind of in a stupor, you kind of can be aware, but you're not really aware of anything in particular. Then we would say, oh, take note of what you are aware of. Take note of that. The labeling is just a, kind of a, uh, an exaggerated form of noting. Because the proximate cause for mindfulness, meaning to remember, to recognize the next moment, mindfulness, the proximate cause is clear perception. Clear perception is the, is the recognition of what you're aware of or, aware, or recognizing the fact of awareness itself. Okay? So if we're clearly aware, oh, this is the breathing in, this is breathing out, then that will support the continuity of, of mindfulness, remembering the next moment. Okay? If we're just kind of sitting there in a kind of a relaxed, thousand-yard gaze, it's kind of like kind of resting in awareness, we're more likely to be indulging in tranquility. Okay? So that's the, that's, that's, that's the, the flip side of... Uh, not noting or not labeling. So labeling is a tool for strengthening the clarity of perception. But we don't need to be overboard about that. We just need to have enough clarity to recognize what this present moment is. Um, so in, in some sense, there's a continuum. We can be very at ease and relaxed in awareness, and we might be clearly perceiving that, or we can be over-diligent with noting and naming every experience and get too tight. So you can be too tight or you can be too loose. Of course, the Buddhist teaching is the middle path, so find a way to both be clear and relaxed, open, recognizing. That's the goal. But that's some general comments on noting, labeling, uh, resting in awareness and the clarity of understanding what this experience is. Yeah? Just calming down and just kind of like hanging out in awareness with just kind of calm. Ah, oh, yeah, fine. Uh, that's okay for about five minutes. That's what I'd say. Then get on the case here. That, that's, that, that can lead to just indulging in kind of a you know, thousand yard gaze, I call it. Samadhi type space. If you were um, able to take time and space, um, maybe not the thousand yard days, but a clear connection with awareness, and, and maybe there are, isn't like, this might not be with the practice, but like if you're watching for any form of greed, hatred, or delusion to come up, you know, and then you know to chill and then you go with that. But if you're in that place and there's not that, and you're not maybe overly tranquil, is that? So the question is about if you're able to be with awareness, kind of resting in awareness, and uh, just waiting for some form of attachment, aversion, delusion to arise, then is that a good or skillful place? I would say, uh, I would spend, if, if, if there's a clear recognition of awareness, I would investigate the nature of awareness and the qualities of awareness. Now, this is not the beginner practice. I don't know if it's your practice or not, but if we are not clearly recognizing the present moment, then we need to investigate what's going on in the present moment. So I'm a little cautious about saying, oh yeah, just kind of hang out there until something arises and catches your attention as, oh, this is attachment or this is aversion, because you're missing the opportunity to investigate the nature of awareness, and it's understanding that's going to free you from the torments. The defilements. It's not just 
resting in awareness that's going to do that. It's understanding the nature of awareness that's going to do that. Oh, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, this question has to do with, um, in, you know, outside of the retreat context, when I'm doing things like reading or like, you know, really uh, trying to solve a particular problem, if, if, assuming the maturation of, you know, this continuous awareness, Will that, you know, will I be able to be able to both concentrate, you know, intellectually <laughs> and maintain continuous awareness? Because somehow it seems like, you know, flipping out to say, oh, I'm thinking destroys the concentration and the concentration can be so intense as to not allow the awareness. So the question has to do with when you're outside of retreat and you're needing to think, is your concentration going to stop that thinking, basically? Can, and, and the, can, you, can you keep thinking and know that awareness can happen? Yes. Um, so this is the training ground for that, that will be when we get into the world. And, and you, most of the time you're here, you're, you're going to notice that thinking is happening and you'll know the content of the thought and you can still be aware of it. Oh, thinking's happening and it will continue. So you can see even here that that's happening, right? So at home that's going to happen too. Um, but Manindra used to tell me, I used to ask these questions, you know, like, Manindra, I need to think, you know, I really need to think. It's, I, I can't stop thinking. And he would get a little perturbed with me and say, I'm not asking you to stop thinking. I'm just asking if you can train to be more aware that thinking is happening. And that in your daily life, you'll know the content and you'll know what's skillful and what's unskillful. And so you can follow what's skillful. Then you can let go what's, un, uh, what's unskillful. And I find actually that's true. Not always, you know, sometimes... I get lost in um, wandering mind too. But uh, yes, it, it does help if you know what you're going to, you need to think about something. Manindra used to say exactly like this. He'd say, if you want to think, sit down and think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to actually go for it, you know. Well, this is what I want to think about. How am I going to handle this with this child or with this bill or, you know, with what I'm doing at work, how am I going to handle this? And I'd really just go for that thinking and let the thoughts happen. And every once in a while, then there would come into play an understanding that thinking is happening. And then it would continue. Oh, thinking's continuing to happen. And then it would continue. So that's going to be what goes on. I I think it's really important to... um, kind of correct this wrong view. If you have the wrong if you have the view that thinking is bad in practice, that's a wrong view. Because yeah. we don't blame our ears for hearing sounds. We don't blame our eyes for seeing sights. We don't blame our nose for smelling smell, odors, right? So just as the ears hear, the eyes see, the nose smells, the mind thinks. Don't blame your mind for thinking. But as we are aware of odors when they arise and we're aware of smelling, we're aware of sights when the eyes are open and we're aware of seeing and we're aware of hearing sounds and hearing, so too we want to learn to be aware of thinking when the mind thinks. It's like that. It's not, you know, we want to be careful not to think that we have to get rid of thinking, we have to stop thinking, or thinking's bad. That's just, that's just, that is going to set up a struggle that you're never going to win. So really, thoughts are okay, sounds are okay, sights are okay, smells are okay, sensations in the body, they're okay. When I say they're okay, they're okay to be known. Right? They may be unpleasant, we don't like them, but to know them is okay. Same with thoughts. Thoughts are okay, but we have to be aware of them or we can act out unskillful thoughts. Right? Thank you.
there's probably endless <laughs> supply of questions. Uh, we want to give you some time before the evening meal to kind of let these words and ideas and concepts kind of settle, <laughs> settle out of your mind a little bit. And hopefully it's been helpful to support your practice. Um, would you like to have this happen again? Yes. Well, maybe. <laughs> that is now one of the conditions that's going to be involved in deciding what, how the retreat unfolds. Huh? There'll be some other afternoon um, offerings, but poss- possibly questions again. Too. But you will all have group, uh, small group check-ins where you can also ask the questions in small groups. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.